Okay, everybody, Doug here, solo in the studio. I, you know, it's the end of the year, and uh, sort of a tradition in media is at the end of the year, they do top 10 lists. Um, and uh, as you know, Peter and I watch a lot of movies, and we think about a lot of movies, and we talk about a lot of movies, and we podcast a lot of movies, but we don't, we don't podcast about every film we see. Uh, but we definitely podcast about the ones that we think are worthy of uh, some good discussion or maybe commentary from the two of us. Um, you know, I wanted to just put something out there and give my personal uh, top 10 of 2018. And I've also uh, crafted two short additional lists, uh, honorable mentions and uh, letdowns, unfortunately. Um, so I'll do the top 10 first in reverse order, and then I'll do honorable mentions and I'll, I'll wrap up with letdowns. Um, so uh, number 10 on Doug's top 10 list was You Were Never Really Here, directed by Lim Ramsey and starring Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, this is a really dark take on Joaquin Phoenix as a disturbed a war veteran who's essentially an avenging angel for money, uh, whose job as a sort of daytime, nighttime hitman um, takes him into ever darker places and really doesn't help him to excise any of his, exercise any of his own demons. Um, I really enjoyed this. I like Len Ramsey. I think Joaquin Phoenix, when he's sort of able to let loose in a role like this, is at his best. I'm very curious to see Joaquin uh, Phoenix's take on the Joker. Uh, that's a role that he is either going to really, really shine in or he's going to go down in flames. Um, the Joker is tough to do, but maybe he can pull it off. Number nine <clears throat> I'm going to put out there is American Animals, uh, the Bart Layton film regarding the transy book heist. I think that for a lot of people, this kind of came and went under the radar, and maybe they uh, heard about it and didn't see it, or maybe they didn't even hear about it. But this was the true story of... Uh, uh, several friends who decided to rob a rare book library at their college uh, and how uh, sort of an ill-formed plan goes all the way to a somewhat botched and somewhat successful robbery and its aftermath. The movie played in a really interesting way with what is truth and what is fiction. Uh, and as you were watching the events unfold, you also were able to they were able to intersperse scenes of the actual people who carried out the actual transy book heist, say that how they felt about it while it was happening or what the film was getting correct or what the film was dramatizing. Um, I liked it. I saw it in a practically empty theater. Uh, and to be honest, I don't really know anybody else who saw it, but it did, I think, get a lot of critical attention. And if you haven't seen it, it's definitely one to catch. Um, number eight, this might be a little bit of a uh, surprising pick for some people. Um, I put Alpha down. This was the Albert Hughes, half of the Hughes brothers, um, starring Cody Smith McPhee, uh, essentially, and a, and a wolf. Um, and this is a story of primitive humans um, and the, the domestication of wolves into dogs or and, and wolves and dogs into hunting partners among humans. This, I thought, was a really uh, out-of-the-box film. There's very, very little dialogue, and most of the, the, the movie follows Cody Smith McPhee, who's left for dead by his uh, prehistoric tribe as he has to brave the elements and all sorts of uh, wild animals and, and hurdles in nature to, to re-find his tribe. Um, I, I'm particularly interested in films about prehistory, it's a really hard genre. There's only a handful of movies that have ever really been able to pull this off, and a lot of films have tried and failed, and I genuinely felt like while I was watching this movie that I was getting a glimpse of what the world might have been like you know, 50, 
uh, or 100,000 years ago. I, I, again, I really liked it. I would put it at number eight. Number seven on my <clears throat> top ten list is Three Identical Strangers, directed by Tim Wardle. And this was the uh, widely hailed story of three um, identical twins who were separated at birth. And what they're, uh, it's the story of how they are reunited and then what happens after the joyous reunion. Um, this is a particularly dark film. It has to do with uh, human experimentation, uh, the lack of uh, consent in human experimentation, things that really couldn't happen today, um, the way that medical research is conducted. But uh, these three boys, and it turns out many other people, were actually uh, unwitting participants in a very large social experiment that was conducted with essentially little to no oversight and really, uh, you know, on the most questionable of moral grounds. Let's just put it that way. The movie is both exhilarating and incredibly sad. Uh, the boys go through, you know, the highs uh, of reunion and the joy of being uh, brought back together. And after, you know, finding out that there's not just one, but there's two other people just like you, um, what you see them go through and what you see others in their same situation had to deal with is also really, really, uh, it's emotionally quite wrenching. But it, I thought it was a fantastic film, and uh, kudos to Tim Wardle for, for pulling it off. Number six, um, I'm going to give to fifth, the 1517 to Paris, directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, this details the story of three Americans who stopped a terrorist event on the TGV um, in France. That's the bullet train. Um, and, you know, again, I sort of like uh, the way that American Animals played with the conventions of cinema. This movie did as well. American Animals sort of interspersed the actual people who uh, who did the transit book heist with the actors playing them. Uh, the 1517 to Paris uses the actual people who actually thwarted the robbery, sorry, the terrorist event on the TGV. So it was interesting that not only did they actually do it, they went on to play themselves in a in a box office, you know, big budget box office movie. So I thought that was, you know, daring. You know, Clint's at a, at a point in his career where he can pretty much try anything he wants. And I thought that, you know, look, these guys weren't professional actors and I don't expect them to function that level. But they were able to really convincingly hold the movie together uh, for the entire time uh, that I was watching it. So uh, 1517 to Paris is my... Is my number six. Number five, I'm going to give to Ron Howard's Solo. Um, you know, this is a movie that I was prepared not to like. Um, I had been incredibly disappointed by the last two mainstream Star Wars films. I just feel like they've gotten so far away from what made the Star Wars movies good, and that was that they were enjoyable and fun, and they had moments of levity interspersed with the drama. Um, and I feel like we've been sort of treated to one grim Star Wars film after the other. Even Rogue One, which I liked, is essentially humorless. Um, I thought Solo got it right. They had a good mix of comedy and drama, uh, a plot that wasn't so heavy and leaden. I thought that it was nice to have an absence of Jedi Knights. Like I think we've seen enough Jedi Knights for a while. Um, you can feel free to disagree, but I, I'm tired of it. I thought Alden Ehrenreich caught a lot of crap for his portrayal of Han Solo, but I had to give him credit for not just mimicking Harrison Ford. And honestly, he was able to carve out his own portrayal of of Han Solo, and I thought he did a good job. Um, 
I thought that uh, Glover did great as Lando Carizian. I think uh, we could certainly have a standalone Lando movie, Lando movie, and I'd certainly go and see that. Woody Harrelson, I thought, was able to uh, more than carry his own water as he does in most films. Um, the story behind the making of this movie was that it was essentially a, a catastrophe. They had to switch directors in the middle, and Ron Howard had to pick the whole thing up. We detail all this in our podcast about the episode. But again, I thought they ended up with a, a polished project that's fun to watch, um, and I felt more was a return to the tone of the original uh, trilogy in somewhat, and that they were able to sort of have a lot more going on than just sort of overwrought Jedi Knights tearing their clothes in, in stress. Um, number four, I would say, is Ready Player One, which I kind of got a little bit dragged to. My wife had read the book, and I wasn't sure I wanted to see it. Um, and Spielberg, for me, is sometimes hit or miss when he does science fiction. Um, note uh, C-A-I, if you'll know, then you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but I thought that Ready Player One really managed to pull it off. Um, you know, they were able to pull in a million pop references, just like the book did. Um, they were able to keep it the story both light enough and entertaining enough and serious enough all at once that they were able to hit a lot of a lot of emotional notes all across the spectrum. And the movie really could make the top ten list just for its homage to Stanley Kubrick. There's about a fifteen minute scene where the movie essentially stopped and they enter the world of Kubrick's The Shining. Uh, and I remember just as I was seeing that, I was literally in awe. I mean it was really just Spielberg at the top of his game. Number three is my second Clint Eastwood film in the top ten. I'm going to give uh, the number three spot to Clint's The Mule. Um, obviously, as you guys may have figured out by now, I am a big Clint fan. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him as a filmmaker and an actor. And I think that, you know, as I said earlier, he's able to sort of make all sorts of choices that he wants. Now he has essentially complete control over his films in a way that only a few directors have in Hollywood. I liked The Mule. I thought it was an interesting and taut story, and I it sort of played with the idea of, you know, what sort of decisions do you make at the very end of your life, um, you know, and, and, and are you res- how you're responsible for those decisions, how you're responsible for the way that you've lived your whole life, how you handle crisis and danger as a very, very old person, which is something we don't usually see in the movies. Um, I had looked forward to this one all year, um, and this movie did not let me down, so I was very, very glad about that. Number two, I'm going to give it to Bohemian Rhapsody, which unfortunately Peter and I did not do a podcast on this year. This was the directed by Brian Singer and Dector Fletcher. This is essentially the, the Freddie Mercury biopic, but it also tells the story of the entire band Queen. Um, you know, I had listened to more than my share of Queen in my life, but I wasn't a huge Queen fan, and I only knew the Freddie Mercury story really in a thumbnail sketch kind of way before I saw the film. Um, and I did some reading after I saw the film, and it sounds like, you know, in as much as they could do it in a two-hour film, they, they pretty much were able to hit the high points of his uh, biography without distorting it too much. Um, this was really a fantastically well-done film. It's super polished, um, extremely well-written. They were able to convey the 80s in a way that didn't make the 80s seem stupid or ridiculous or over-the-top. It's very easy for... Uh, a film about a decade that's long since passed to to represent everybody as characters, and they didn't do that. Remy Malek, obviously, really, in just a career-defining performance for him. I see great things in his future. Um, and uh, the complex dynamics of the band, 
um, Freddie's uh, gay lifestyle, his his disease. He ultimately, obviously, succumbs to HIV. No spoilers there. It's all just incredibly well portrayed, and the way that they build the whole thing around uh, the culmination of the Live Aid concert was just. It was really, really gripping. I remember I, when we were watching, I looked around the theater, and there were kids, there were middle-aged people, there were old people. I mean, everybody was just beaming with joy watching this film. Uh, definitely one to see. You've probably seen it by now if you're listening to movie podcasts, but definitely check out Bohemian Rhapsody if you haven't seen it. And my number one uh, spot for the year, I think, I think by far and away, as much as I've liked the other nine films on my top ten list, I think... By far and away, my number one spot uh, goes to Eighth Grade, directed by Bo Burnham and starring Elsie Fisher. Uh, And this movie really shows how much you can do with a great script and a great uh, actor. Um, This is essentially a very uh, narrow-focused story of uh, of a a few weeks in the life of an eighth grader who's getting ready to graduate from middle school, medical school, middle school, and head off to high school. And this movie is able to capture so much of the universality of adolescence um, and the sort of the awkwardness and the hope and the fear and the energy and the excitement and the stress and the tension that goes into being an early adolescent uh, and, a, and a burgeoning young adult. Um, I forget the actor's name who played her father. He also does a fantastic job. And nobody in this movie ever falls into stereotypes. There's, this movie just feels so incredibly genuine from top to bottom. Um, Elsie Fisher, I hope she goes on to make a lot of other films. Um, she carries this entire movie on her shoulder. She's in virtually every second on screen, and you are never, ever tired of watching her and her reactions and her emotional range. is just breathtaking uh, for a child actor. So definitely uh, number one goes to Eighth Grade by Bo Burnham. Um, so I want to just touch base on a few other things, some honorable mentions. Um, I think uh, here's five films that I, I really enjoyed that I think had some, you could see why maybe they weren't the biggest hits of the year, but if you get a chance, you should see them. Uh, number one, I'm going to go with Lizzie. This is the Chloe Sevigny, Kristen Stewart uh, star vehicle. Uh, that's the Lizzie Borden story. This was directed by Craig McNeil. I did see this before 2018, but it came out in 2018. I did see this as part of Sundance. Um, in Utah, um, you know, and this is an interesting film. You know, there hasn't been a, a recent film about Lizzie Borden that I could recall. Um, I had read actually two books about Lizzie Borden in the couple of years prior, so I knew the story in a fair bit of detail. And there's a lot of unanswered questions about it, what exactly happened in the Lizzie Borden murders. And, you know, they do a good job of trying to uh, put all the pieces together. I mean, some of it is a little bit of supposition and uh, they did have to, you know, make some decisions that involved some artistic license. But, you know, this was a glimpse into a world and a time that has gone with a lot of detail surrounding an event that has been analyzed endlessly uh, as to what exactly happened. Um, I thought both Chloe Sevigny and Kristen Stewart really, really did a great job in this uh, a dark and complicated film. Probably you didn't see it. Uh, I assume it's on. Uh, it'll be on streaming services, and if you haven't seen it, check it out. Number two, I'm going to go with um, Operation Finale. Uh, this was a, a dramatization of the uh, hunt and capture of Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann in um, 
South America. Uh, Oscar Isaac uh, is essentially the star of the film as one of the Israelis, uh, the Mossad agents sent to South America to get Eichmann. Uh, ben Kingsley plays Eichmann himself. Um, this is, you know, a tense film about um, revenge and redemption and uh, the Holocaust and the ramifications of the Holocaust 20 years after it's occurred. Um, just very, very tense and interesting. I think I saw it in a, in a nearly empty theater you know, again, not a cheery film, not a, you know, not a popcorn movie, as I like to say, but definitely one of the better films I saw this year. Really well put together. Um, and if you want to get a sense of how tense this was and how difficult an operation this was from an espionage point of view, <clears throat> definitely worth a look. Number three for honorable mentions is Red Sparrow, uh, directed by Francis Lawrence and starring no relation Jennifer Lawrence. Um, this is a bit of a, a mixed bag. You know, this uh, is a, an A-level film with a lot of money behind it, um, big-budget drama, but didn't really catch on, and I think got very mixed reviews. I think uh, a dark and complicated role for Lawrence to play, um, not a lot of glamour in her role as a Soviet-trained uh, assassin slash uh, honeypot. Um a complicated story, too, that you kind of had to really pay attention to follow all the aspects of. There were some over-the-top gory scenes that I think probably turned some reviewers off or turned some audience members off that they maybe didn't need. You know, some of those scenes played better in the book than they did in the film. Um, but, you know, it is the first in a series, and I wouldn't be surprised if they tried again to make another movie in this series. I suspect uh, Jennifer Lawrence won't return to this character, but somebody else could. Um, and there's enough meat on the bone in this film that it's definitely worth a watch on video if you missed it in the theaters. Uh, number four on my honorable mention list is Seven Days in Entebbe. Uh, this uh, involves uh, the Black September hijacking of a plane that ends up in Entebbe and the Mossad and the Israeli army's efforts to essentially go kill all the, the terrorists um, and save uh, the, the Israelis who are essentially trapped in a in a terrible hostage situation in Entebbe. Um, there have been other movies made about this before. It's kind of hard to do this in a way that hasn't been done before. And to a large extent, the movie didn't really do it in a way. It's actually very similar to some of the prior uh, movies that involve the Entebbe raid. But again, it's such a gripping story, and it is true um, that I really enjoyed this one, and I would definitely give it a shot. Last on my honorable mention list is Chappaquiddick. Directed by John Kern, starring uh, Jason Clark as uh, Teddy Kennedy and focusing on the death and drowning of Mary Jo Kopechny and how the Kennedy uh, family and the Kennedy political machine were able to handle and spin the entire event. Um, I'm super interested in politics. This is a, a dark, dark film um, about how far people will go to protect uh, terrible people who are on their side of the street politically and how those uh, actors themselves um, are able to you know, keep going with their public persona uh, despite having done some terrible, terrible things. Um, obviously a very political film. I think that perhaps people on one side of the political spectrum may have avoided it because it portrayed a, a liberal icon in a negative way, but again... Um, I did a fair bit of reading after I saw the film, and it's a pretty accurate representation of what occurred as far as I can tell. Um, so, you know, love Teddy Kennedy or hate him, um, you know, there's a lot of truth in that movie, I think. 
Um, and then I just want to wrap up with three movies that, boy, did I have big hopes for that in one way or another kind of let me down. Um, I'll go in reverse order. Uh, number three was Sicario 2, uh, directed by uh, Stefano Salima. Man, did I look forward to this. I love Sicario. Sicario was one of my favorite films the year it came out. It just sort of came out of nowhere. It was super taut, super well done, turned a lot of the action genre on its ear and managed to convey a lot of serious content that was really timely to our political situation. Um, and Sicario 2 really didn't do any of that. Uh, Josh Brolin and Benicio Toro uh, do uh, workmanlike jobs with uh, a, a script that sort of aims to uh, mimic everything great about Sicario one and, and essentially fails. Um, Emily Blunt's absence is keenly felt in Sicario 2, um, and the, the the plot and the twists and turns of Sicario 2 just left, I think, a lot of people let down, if not outright confused. Um, I, I hear rumors that there's going to be Sicario 3, so hopefully they can get it uh, a little bit better on round 3, which, in all fairness, I will probably go and see. Uh, number two on my letdown list was Annihilation, uh, the Alex Garland film uh, starring Natalie Portman. Uh, I like Alex Garden, or Gar- Alex Garland quite a lot. I Dread is one of my favorite sci-fi movies of the last ten years. I really enjoy Ex Machina. Uh, I think he's capable of really putting together some out-of-the-box uh, sci-fi material. Uh, this was not it. Um, Natalie Portman, despite all her talents, really couldn't save this film. Um this was all build up and um, no payoff. I remember like 90 minutes into the movie, uh, I saw with my wife when we were talking about that, boy, they better give us something for all this build up. And they really don't. It's just an incredibly disappointing ending that doesn't leave you with any sort of emotional impact. Um, I was excited to see this one. I remember seeing the trailer for it and thinking, aha, you know, adult hardcore sci-fi. Um, and it was in, in the end, essentially a big mess. And number one on my letdown list, and again, some some listeners may uh, may may take issue with me on this point, but uh, First Man, I'm going to have to put First Man top on my letdown list. Um, this was directed by Damien Chazelle and starring Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy in the Neil Armstrong biopic. Um, if there's one film that I waited for the entire year, it was First Man. Um, you know, as soon as I heard early news about it, I was so excited for this. I'm a huge buff on the space program. I had read uh, the biography of the same title um, that uh, the movie is based on. And I, I can't tell you how excited I was to see this film. And and, you know, it's hard to it's hard to say that it's a bad movie. It's well written. It's well acted. The effects are extremely good. Uh, and they, they, they take a first-person approach to a lot of events we've seen before. And, for example, the landing on the moon of Apollo 11 has been done in a lot of movies and television shows, and they really, truly came up with a different way to do it, you know, by doing it purely first-person with nothing else except uh, the events of the lunar module. Yet the film was somehow missing something. And, uh, you know, I think I made the comment in the podcast with Peter that I don't know how you could make a movie about landing on the moon that wasn't uplifting. And the film somehow managed to be emotionally flat and unsatisfying emotionally. Um, You know, Neil Armstrong participated in some of the most, you know, dramatic events of the 20th century. Uh, He was a fighter pilot in Korea, none of which is shown in the film. He flew the X-15. He flew in the Gemini program 
Uh, he flew in the Apollo program and became, you know, arguably one of the most famous people of the, of the 20th century. And then yet somehow um, the movie did not generate excitement. It didn't generate joy. It didn't generate pride and humanity for walking on the moon. It generated a lot of quiet awe and introspection. And again, maybe that was the point of the film because by all accounts, Armstrong was a, you know, a very, very internalized guy who was very difficult to know. And that's fine. But I don't know if the point of a hundred million dollar movie uh, about landing on the moon is just to make you feel quiet and introspective. That's certainly not how people in 1969 felt about it. You know, it was really just one of the greatest accomplishments of the United States and humanity in the last, you know, thousand years. And, and to, to play it on such a small scale, I think, was honestly probably a misstep for uh, the director in this one. So, you know, I've seen it more than once and I've gone back and given it a second chance. And you can tell, you can tell when Peter and I did the podcast on it that I was a little flat on it. And again, it does have some great moments. And for example, the Gemini 8 scene where they lose control of the spacecraft and the Apollo 11 landing scene are, are really, really very well done and memorable. But, you know, when you think about Apollo 13 or the right stuff or other movies about space and the real space program, you know, those movies had a bigger scope and a bigger scale and were able to sort of convey a lot more positive emotions as opposed to just negative emotions and I think that that was really missing from First Man so again I think definitely my biggest uh, letdown of the year was uh, First Man so um, that is my uh, take on my top 10 uh, my honorable mentions and my letdowns um, you've probably noticed an absence of humongous blockbusters on my list and that's because I'm not a huge superhero fan and a lot of our big films in 2018, as in most years, it seems these days, are superhero movies. But those really, um, I kind of feel like I've I've seen everything in the superhero genre. And there's not a ton uh, out there that appeals to me uh, in those films. So again, uh, for those of you who are looking for superhero films in this list, uh, sorry to disappoint. But again, I, I got to be true to who I am and really give it to you like I see it. So again... Uh, my final words, I would say a good year for film overall, and uh, if you haven't, just run. Don't walk, run, and see 8th Grade. I know that it's available on streaming services now, but by far and away, nothing touched it. My top film of 2018. All right, guys, uh, that's it for now, and we'll be back uh, soon. Also, as a side note, Peter and I are working on a second project that uh, I don't want to say too much about now, but it'll be out probably, uh, hopefully, if all goes well, uh, by the end of January 2019, and we're going to record all the episodes for that in advance and then release the whole thing uh, at once. Okay, all right, that's awesome, and thanks again, and uh, we'll be back in 2019 with more podcasts. <laughs>